Tears, hugs, kisses, mistakes, tragedy, and rage. The third to final episode of Game of Thrones had perhaps the most emotional episode in the show's history, with so much heartbreak and couples splitting up and goodbyes and tragic death. I'm James Hibbard. I'm here at Darren Franich. We're going to get into all of that, but first, a little message from our sponsor, Toyota. Introducing the all-new Toyota RAV4 XSE Hybrid with sport-tuned suspension, advanced hybrid technology, and relentless horsepower. It's ready to blow past the competition. And since our most powerful RAV4 is a hybrid, it's leaving all expectations in its wake. RAV4's revolutionized style and luxurious cabin can give you the comfort and confidence to take over. So if it's power you're after, RAV4's XSE Hybrid's the answer. Visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details. Okay, so... First, we have to talk about this stupid coffee cup thing, just because everybody's talking about it. And if we don't talk about it, people are going to be like, why don't you talk about the coffee cup? Are you trying to cover up the coffee cup scandal? And, and I'm not. I'm really not. So, yeah, um, there's a photo of a, a, a modern like Starbucks-like coffee cup in front of Daenerys Targaryen um, at the Winterfell feast. And she's just sitting there with a, with a coffee cup in front of her like it's no big deal. And um, that's a little, little, little mistake, a little rare error of continuity uh, for Game of Thrones. Uh, they're normally so perfectionistic, and every single frame of the show, you know, undergoes so many eyes that go over it before it hits the air. It's pretty surprising that that made it in. I remember a couple years ago there was a shot circulating around the internet of like a pickup truck in the background of like the frozen lake battle. And, but it was, it, it was like Photoshopped. It, it, I mean, it, you know, even that was fake, but you know, yeah, yeah. Somehow, um, oh, you, know, you know, somebody's latte cup got in the shot. I love the coffee cup. People aren't like upset about the coffee cup. Are they like, this is a wonderful like piece of cinematic accident that we are witnessing here. Um, I just think it's so, well, okay. First of all, what you're saying about perfectionism, uh, there was a show, uh, this was a show that last week I was not able to see 90% of the scenes that happened. So like, I think there's different kinds of perfectionism and I just love, cause so I, I like you, I did not notice the coffee cup when I was watching the episode, uh, total shout out to everyone who did see it. It was such a kind a blink and you miss it thing um but i just think it's so funny it's so charming um you know guys this is a show about dragons fighting zombies in a fantasy continent like i think we can suspend our disbelief a little bit um so i'm i'm actually pretty okay with it james are, are there people are, that are upset like are you are you upset about this i guess is is uh, wh- wh- is what i should be asking I don't think people are upset. I, I think people just find it funny. There are some people that are, you know, irritated about Game of Thrones in general. They're going, "Look, this is how sloppy they are," you know. So, 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 so there is a bit of that. I'm sure it's going to be digitally erased pretty quickly. So, no. Oh, absolutely. There is no Save way it. the blue Save the Blu-ray it. comes out where there is like a you know a Starbucks stuff. And by the way, I, I'm I'm certain it's not a Starbucks cup. I'm I mean it might be. It certainly looks like it, but it's. They usually always use like their little craft services truck. I mean, if you want Starbucks, that's like a special run, like way outside the studio. So I'm surprised if that really is one. But you know, who knows? There is some kind of insignia on it, I think, exactly like, in, yeah. in the shadows that, that that people have noticed. Yeah, I I, I would love to know um, what that is. Listen, everybody, like you know. Th- th- 
TV movies and everything. It's supposed to be fun. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm coming at this from a weird perspective, James, because my favorite show on TV right now is The Good Fight, which, like, willfully throws aside reality basically every five minutes or so. But I, I kind of like this. This was, this was, I mean, this episode in general was really wacky in a lot of ways. Um, and so it, it doesn't surprise me that, like, this is the episode where the coffee cup controversy inevitably happens. Um, but I, I, I have to say, like, waking up to that this morning was just such a charming uh, piece of the you know of the hundred different reactions that have kind of occurred to all the stuff that happened in uh, this week's episode i I just thought that was a fun little kind of asterisk to put next to everything yeah i i just got a message from from uh uh uh, one of our our social media team saying um they just uh slacked me saying you know the coffee cup post is now on facebook and it overtook the royal baby news so And and I have to say, by the way, I have to say, just lest lest anyone think that like James Hibbert is not the hardest working man involved in this whole operation, in my opinion, um, James. So you have a, a few great pieces that we'll talk about later in this episode. Pieces that, in one way or another, you've been working on for a very long time. I mean, you were speaking to some major uh, performers from last night's episode who had major things happen to them. Have to assume you were working on those pieces for a while to have to muster really quickly this morning to cover like a coffee cup in, in, in a few frames yeah, in an yeah, 80 no, minute yeah. episode. It, it, was, it, was, it was funny because you were saying how delighted you were and I was I was thinking of, of, of how, how how frustrated I was because I had to do <laughs> EW Radio and do his podcast and I'm like suddenly saying hold the podcast I have to write about the coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> There's that a was, coffee cup on the set damn it. That, <laughs> that coffee cup was, was worth holding for. Yeah um, it's, it, but, it, but it, you, it, 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 it's interesting you know the, the, the Game of Thrones showrunners haven't commented on the darkness thing but i but uh from long night but i wouldn't be surprised if, if they commented on this because i feel like this is the type of thing that they would they would have fun with speaking of which you know and not to talk about you know the wrong episode but i went back and i was re-watching uh you know, the long night and i swear to god speaking of changing i swear to god that thing was lighter the second time and, and i wasn't the only person that had this reaction and there could be a technical reason for it other than I don't think that they like sneakily went in and like changed the file or something. I, I, you know, I do wonder if when watching it during like the day, like during like an off peak hour that you're getting less compression, uh, then, you know, because the digital compression that, that your cable company does, um, you know, can make uh, darks mu- look, look much darker and more muddled. So I, I have to wonder whether a lot of people that had a problem watching it, if they went back and rewatched it now, whether they would have the same or as much of a problem. And I, I wasn't the only, only one who knows it. Our people noticed it too. And, you know, one uh, reader, um, uh, you know, tweeted at me a really cool screenshot that was one frame of the battle from their cable company and one frame of the battle watching um, the same frame from HBO now. And it was just literal night and day difference. One was dark and murky and, and unwatchable and the era one was like super clear. And it really, I, so I really think that that the battle thing, and I see you rolling your eyes a little bit because, because we're, we're, we're on Google Hangouts. I'm totally calling you out for that. I think it does matter. And, and as I said before, I don't think it should be incumbent upon the viewer to have a perfect setup to enjoy an episode of television. At the same time, it does seem to matter, you know, what you're watching it on, what your source material is, how your TV is calibrated. So it does kind of fall into that gray area of 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 it can look great, but 
you know, for, 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 for a you know, fair sized portion of the audience, it doesn't look great. Well, I hear what you're saying, and I apologize for rolling my eyes. Uh, various teachers from my grade school are, like, screaming at me now from uh, beyond the grave. But, uh, look, James, maybe I'm just kind of – well, I, again, I'm always intrigued by what people think about this. In the last week, I'm sure, like, you have talked to a lot of different people. Some people, uh, you know, very near and dear to me whose taste I trust thought that was one of the best episodes of the show. I, I guess for me, I kind of come back to, you know, when I was growing up, I was watching, like, movies on VHS on crappy TVs – like watching 2001, watching like the searchers, like movies that like, you know, in any kind of like structural aesthetic way, you would say that's not the way to experience it. Um, but the first time I ever saw 2001 in a totally reduced version of itself, I thought it was great. So I, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm platform agnostic. I kind of think that like if something is good, it'll be good if broadcast in reverse, upside down, like with the wrong color in a language you don't understand. Um, but I will say just to kind of further our conversation about last week by way of getting into this week's episode, um, I think Maybe on some level, I'm realizing that I just never really thought the Army of the Dead was that interesting because this episode, which is really, to me, um, the first episode in a couple seasons, uh, totally untouched by any conversation about the Army of the Dead. We are now so completely past the point where that can be a thing that different characters sort of unite against. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of this episode because of that. It sort of felt like we were back into the thick of not entirely being able to root completely for everyone. Um, you know, there are people who are making like pretty out there decisions, um, some very impulsively, some, you know, strategies that seemed good that turned out being not so good. And I guess just in general, I'm wondering if maybe the reaction to last week's episode being kind of polarized is more an evidence of some people being more into that sort of epic showdown with the Night King part of the show. Because I guess I'm realizing that that just was not necessarily what I liked most about the show. And I'm, I'm glad we're out of that phase. Does that kind of make more sense? You were, you, you were fortunately not rolling your eyes at me, so maybe I'm making some amount of sense now. <laughs> yeah, what you just said about um, watching TV uh, as a kid actually just reminded me of one tweet I got that I really liked. It was somebody responding to the complaints about the long night, and they were saying, uh, I'm paraphrasing, it was like, look, you know, when I was growing up, we had the practice, you, you know, you know, this is amazing. <laughs> so, so, so it's a good reminder of the TV we, we had growing up was, was like these, these, you know, these broadcast network procedurals, you know, that they filmed in Burbank, you know, for, 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 for minimum budget per episode. And you're rolling your eyes again. And now not, we have, and, and, and now we have this like epic sweep and yet we find things to sort of, uh, you know, uh, nitpick about but well i mean i mean again my favorite show on television right now is a lawyer show filmed in the corner of new york that's meant to look like chicago so we can agree to disagree on what scope really comes down to but again i do just kind of wonder if a lot of the responses about last week's episode focused on the most obvious thing the inability to see a lot of the episode as a way right. to kind of express right. something more deeply felt yeah. um yeah. But, but again james um i i would kind of like to just know in general with this new episode 
episode. Um, this just felt really meaty to me, and it felt to me as if, you know, as much as last week's episode was very long and as much as it had these sort of big moments with a lot of character fatalities, um, this episode, it just felt like a lot, it was a lot more pivotal for everyone involved and every kind of moment between characters. It sort of felt like it was the beginning of the end, if not the end, for a lot of the dynamics that we've seen play out over the course of, of the whole series. Um, How did you feel in, in general about uh, this episode, the, the third to last of uh, the series? I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it had... I thought it felt like the most Game of Thronesian of the episodes of the final season so far. It's yeah. like the opener had that very opener feeling. Then you had episode two, which is very play-like and unusual in that respect. Then you have episode three, which was extremely a- action-filled and unusual in that respect. And this seemed like the kind of balance of intimate moments and in action that we're sort of used to on the show. Uh you said a moment ago about uh, you know fans being you know fixated on 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 the night king king and you know him being him seemingly or apparently you know, exiting the show um that i found interesting too because uh a lot of fans in my twitter feed seem very upset that 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 thread is now done um you know they were, were, were very there's so many fan theories about the night king so many fan theories about brand the night king that everybody thought that was key to the very end. And I personally really like that they dealt with the supernatural threat and are now moving on to the human drama because that's where I felt the show has always been the most compelling, but totally. not everybody, fe- but not everybody feels that way. And, and well, they're wrong. there are some that feel, <laughs> that feel, that feel like, Oh, well, you know, who cares about these people? You, you know, you know, the, 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 the zombie King is dead. And I, and I don't really get that. And I'm sort of surprised that so many people sort of banked on, so heavily on the night King, given that he's one of the few major characters. And these are fans that know the show inside and out, know the mythology inside and out. The night King was never, is like one of the few characters that's like, like I think maybe the only major character that, that, that that's not in the books. So, and so, so it's a purely a show creation. So I was surprised that so many thought that, 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 that the night King was going to be absolutely key to how it ended. Um, but yeah, so yeah, this episode felt like it had a great balance. I feel like in some ways it felt like two episodes, right? It yeah. felt like, it was, it was an 80 minute episode. I could, could totally see this episode with a little bit more screen time being split into two 44 minute, like season four, like episodes where one episode is almost entirely at Winterfell. And then they cliffhang as they, you know, start their, their, their trek to King's landing. And then the next episode is almost entirely at King's landing. Um, so it really felt like two episodes in one uh, to, to some extent. And of course we, we opened with, uh, the funeral scene, which I thought was really magnificently directed by, by David Nutter. And you have this moment, um, with, uh, da- uh Daenerys, uh, kissing Sir Jorah and whispering something to him. And this is a story that I hasn't yet gone up on the site, but it's going up on the site. And like, uh, between the time that we record, record this and this podcast being out as I interviewed, uh, actor Ian Glenn about that very moment. So what it said in the script was something like uh, Daenerys whispers something to him that he'll never hear and will never know, which is a very neat way of putting it. And so there wasn't any lines in the script. Uh, Amelia Clark had to write her own lines for, for that moment. And since the entire point of the moment is that we don't get to 
you know, hear what was said. I knew he wouldn't just blurt it out, but I did try to get him, pin him down a little bit. I was like, you know, did she say something sincere? Was it something funny? Was it something in character? And he was like, you know, it's something entirely sincere and true to the moment, something I'll never forget. And I said, you know, people are going to be asking you for years what she whispered to you. Are you prepared for that? And he's like, yeah, but I'll always cherish it because it's something, you know, no one will ever know but the two of us. And that's a memory I'm going to hold on to. So so I, I, th- I thought that was a very neat thing that, that they have this like little shared on-screen moment that no one will ever know what was said and that that will like like live on as as like a mystery and in an age of everybody knowing everything that that's going to be something that they'll just keep between themselves i love that so much and it's so great too because that's such a moment of intimacy between her and of course someone who's been with her for such a long time in an episode that to a certain extent was ultimately about daenerys losing everyone who knew her back when you know i mean like she's now kind of moving into the phase where she still has these people who are following her even people who love her but they've only ever kind of known her as daenerys stormborn breaker of chains all the other names that she's kind of accrued over the course of of, of her long time steadily ascending towards the throne um and, you know, even in the very next scene, James, when you kind of had everyone drinking and celebrating, this is actually, I really thought for a second that the whole episode or like a whole episode length, like 45 minutes, was just going to be this celebration because we spent so long in there. And it was so interesting seeing how in that sequence, um, you know, as much as Danny is celebrating like everyone else, she's also kind of moving into political mode. Like, you know, she is scanning around the room. I thought that Amelia Clark played this scene really interestingly as like she's not even really blinking that much she feels like she's very much kind of beginning to plan for the next phase of her ascension and you know even a moment that on the face of it is a very happy moment um the the uh, bringing up of gendry giving him the rightful name baratheon giving him storm's end um even that for her is kind of another chess move and i just think it's interesting in an episode that begins with a moment for her that is deeply personal and deeply rooted in, in, in where she came from you're just seeing a different side of her an evolution that really points the way towards what happens at the end of the episode and and, and what may happen to king's landing from here yeah, the entire uh, feast sequence I thought was really well done. It just it felt like you were just it, it didn't feel like this this strict scripted thing. It felt like you were immersed in the loose sloppiness of that moment, and yeah. there was cheers, and there was happiness, and there were smiles, and there were, there were other moments that that were a little bit you know different characters tracking what other thing other characters were doing. It was so complex and all these characters that are uh, these actors that are at the top of their game playing all these different subtleties going on and there's this tension there too because you know you're watching a feast sequence on game of thrones those don't <laughs> normally go very well yeah and you have Daener- daenerys giving gendry a promotion with the scariest speech she, she could possibly have given to give him something nice it's like oh my god um you know the poor kid um yeah, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was just it was it was this nice moment of, you know, things are good now. We're happy now. We all know it's not going to last, and we all know that 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 the knives are are, are about to come out. And this yeah. is probably the last time that, you know, definitely the last time all of these characters, given what happens later in the episode, are going to be together. You know, you know, happy like this again. And uh, yeah. 
And so, yeah, I, 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 I thought that was, uh, it was a, just kind of a, it had a nice kind of, you know, you know, loosey goosey feel, feel to it that you don't really, you know, see a lot in, in the final season when things are you know, very urgent and, and plot driven and moving forward quickly. Totally. It really just sort of felt like anything could happen. Um, for me, it really kind of brought back George R. R. Martin's uh, chapter about the Red Wedding, which I believe is written from uh, Caitlin's perspective. And just like the the flow of that party and how you're just kind of feeling everything get more and more tense as everybody gets drunker and drunker. That was kind of on my mind. So yeah, like you, it sounds like I was sort of like, uh-oh, like who's drinking what and what should we, what should we, <laughs> should we, should we be concerned about? And I think that part of that comes from you kind of mentioned different characters watching everybody um you know the spider kind of looming in the background you, you, you became aware again in this scene that the people who are really playing the game of thrones for them this might as well be the battle for winterfell this sort of seemingly fun and happy moment all the wheels are always turning i'm calling it by the way king gendry baratheon by the end of the season um i think i've like said this somewhat jokingly before because it, in i mean in, in all honesty the fact that he came back to the show at all always felt to me like there was something more happening there but I, I just feel like now in an episode where the spider specifically said you know maybe the best person to be lord of the iron throne is the person who doesn't want it or, or, or doesn't realize that they want it um, which we'll talk about later what that means for him exactly but I was just thinking like wow like I mean, Gendry is just Gendry and or Bronn are the two people who just keep on rising the ranks over the course of the show, <laughs> just getting handed like grand castles right and left. Uh, so I'm, right. I'm, 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 I'm hanging all my uh, Vegas odds on on him winding up uh, on the throne and probably doing a horrible job with it. Um, but uh, James, we'll just kind of like cut around a little bit here. Were there moments in that uh, in that feast that really stuck out to you as being particularly pivotal or fun um, or even just like interesting in terms of, as you said, the last time seeing all these people all together? I mean, I, I think what I'd, I'd jump to is, uh, since you said Gendry, is Gendry proposing to Arya, which isn't surprising at all, right? I mean, Arya is 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 is, is a lady, she's, uh, or highborn, rather, and, um, you, know, you know, she's cool, she just killed the Night King, she slept with them, you know, she can change her appearance at will. I mean, there, there, there's so many cool things about her. Um, and uh, and it was a very touching scene, and I really like I really liked... Arya's reaction because Arya can be so, you know, frosty and and cool, you know, sometimes, and you know that she kind of got down on 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 her knee too and sort of you know picked him up and you know kissed him and sort of gently broke it to him as really as sweetly and as nicely as she possibly could that that wasn't the life that she saw for herself and yeah, I, uh, I, yeah. I, I really like I thought that scene was surprisingly sweet and I really like that a lot and also makes me a bit worried for Arya now that she's like deciding to know I'm not done yet I'm you know there's still at least one name on my list and I'm gonna go south yeah I, I really kind of thought that was an interesting just an interesting turn for that scene where you have Gendry who is someone who in a lot of ways is innocent of the wider world and you almost kind of watch him about to become a lord and you're kind of like man like you might find a you might find a moment where you want to go back to being like the cool sweaty blacksmith but it was interesting like Arya sort of taking that moment to just say like no like that's not my thing I, I, I was sort of wishing like you know couldn't Gendry have said like listen like you know we can be a cool couple like you know you don't you, you don't have to 
to be, you know, the the matriarch of a household if you don't want to. But but again, I I, I hear what you're saying, and I do think that it felt very. Um, it was it was just interesting that the show sort of took that moment that Gendry clearly thought was like this is when I like get the girl and it's all my romantic dreams coming true yeah. and just going in, in a very different way with it. Meanwhile, they don't James, apparently have have like casual hookup relationships in in <laughs> in Westeros. I mean, that doesn't seem to be be a thing. Both with you know Jamie and Brienne and and. Uh, and and Gendry and Arya, things get really serious really quickly once you sleep with somebody. I mean, like there was Danny and uh, what's his face over in uh, uh, Essos. I'm, I've, it's, it's embarrassing to me that I've already forgotten that whole corner of the show. Who's who's who, who's who's running things over in that corner of the world now, James? Oh, the Dario. Guy used to hook up with. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there, there's Dario. They, they they seem like they had a a, a respectful friends with benefits um, um, relationship. James, you mentioned Jamie and Brienne. A lot of thoughts on this. I know a lot of people out there probably have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, I'm definitely intrigued to hear what you think. For me, this was a bit of a like Joey and Rachel moment uh, as far as like two people that I just don't think it really makes a lot of emotional sense what happened between them. Um, but w- w- how did you feel about this? Uh, this Do you mean Ross again... and Rachel or, or did Joey and Rachel get together at one point? Your, 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 your knowledge of friends might be deeper cut than mine. Well, or almost well, James, certainly is. My, my, my knowledge of friends ends when Joey and Rachel got together, which is the end of friends being an even remotely good show. Um, but I guess it's just like, you know, Joey and Rachel to me always kind of sums up the moment when a show has been on long enough and all it really has left to do is start pairing certain people off. And it's kind of like, well, these two people haven't. And, and I guess I, I, I get that, like, you know, you could argue that's not what's happening here. But I guess I just I just felt like I would argue like, that that's not what's happening here. But, but, well, but, but go on. I just think JB and Brienne were like chill pals, you know. Like I, I just I I don't really get the feeling of their relationship as being as romantic as this episode wanted it to be. So I, I, mm. I struggled with that in a major way. I mean, and, and maybe I had the wrong read. And, you know, listen, they literally were hooking up while they were both really, really drunk. So maybe there's more playfulness here than I'm sensing. Um, but you had an incredible interview, one of my favorites you've ever done for this show, um, with Gwendolyn Christie, sort of about this moment uh, and about her thoughts on how Brienne felt about it. Um, what was that experience like talking to to her and how do you feel in general about this turn for her character for for both their characters there's a quote that she gives in there about um how she's never been certain of the relationship between jamie and brianne it hasn't been a love story it's been a, this strange relationship between a man and a woman that's never been able to find its true form and i think that's a really really accurate read on it it's you know there's obviously so much respect there you know there, there's caring there there's friendship there you know, they're both, you know, they're a man and a woman. They, you know, they're, they went through this in really intense experience, this really intense physical experience of the battle together. And then they go and have drinks. It doesn't surprise me that that would lead to something happening. And I think the awkwardness that you're talking about was actually part of the scene. You know, when they get back, it's not apparent that that's what necessarily should happen. Um, There's this, wonderfully awkward you know you know banter about like firewood and stuff that that i think it's familiar to anyone that's been at the end of a date and you know you're not sure what to do next right and 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 i think you know you know you're talking about how you're not really sure whether that works i think the characters are are there too i think the characters weren't really sure 
what to do either. And yet gave this a try. And, and I think that that's okay. Um, because I, th- I think a lot of relationships are, are, are like that. It's like, you're not sure, you know, is this right? Is this not? And sometimes you just, you know, go for it a bit romantically and see. And so I, so I think a lot of, you know, the uncertainty that you're express- expressing is actually embedded within the story and embedded w- within the scene and, and certainly embedded with how it ends. Um, as for, uh, you know, the, that interview, oh, the interview was so good. I mean, it, Gwendolyn Christie is always one of my favorite people to interview. She's, she's so passionate about her character. She thinks so deeply about her character. And when you catch somebody on set and they're in between shooting, you just kind of never know what kind of, you know, you know, you know, mind state they're going to be in, you, you, you know, they could be exhausted, you know, they could have all this other stuff going on. Um, you never know if you're going to get interrupted halfway through and, and then have to try and pick it up in little pieces again later. And this is one of those times where, you know, I went into her trailer and she was just ready, really ready to talk about this. And, uh, so I, I was extremely happy with, with this interview. And there's this one point in there that it was one of those times it's like, you don't, like to insert yourself into a Q and a or, or insert yourself into a story. But I, it was really interesting and kind of fun at the time because she at one point stops and she pauses and leans forward and she turns the tables on me a bit. She's like, what did you think of the fact that Brianna sex with Jamie? And she's looking at me really, really closely. And, and she hasn't told me what she has thought yet. And so I'm, you know, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little freaked out because I know that I'm like the first outsider she's spoken to it about it with, and she's looking at me like, you know, what you're saying is going to matter. And it's like, I want to be honest. And at the same time, I, you know, I don't want to want to like offend her. And at the same time, I'm realizing that this is turning into a great Q and a and anything I say, if I'm being honest about how I present it, I'm going to have to put what I say in print, you know, 13 months from now. And I hope I don't sound stupid. So, you know, so, so, so I kind of go through, you know, what I thought and, uh, you know, that, you know, my first thought was that I was so surprised because I did not think it was going to happen. Um, my second thought was, is that there's a lot of fans who want them to have a romantic relationship. I mean, this has been something that's been shipped for, for, for season after season. So I thought that they'd be very happy and I, happy. And I thought that there'd be some people that would be like, well, you know, Brienne doesn't really want this or no, Brienne doesn't really need this as, as, as a strong, you know, woman. Um, so I thought there'd be a, some objection too. And I also thought that it could get some flack because of Arya and Gendry, uh, you know, Oh, the show had the two strong, seemingly asexual warrior women of Winterfell, you know, hook up with somebody. So, so I, I so I kind of went through all, all the different sort of thoughts there and, and, and she had, had, had her own and, um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty terrific. And, and she went through the whole same thought process. You know, she likes that Brienne is clearly, you know, choosing to have this, you know, she feels like, um, ultimately that it to, you know, she, she's a woman, so she's going to ha- have a sex drive. So, so why not ex- explore that if you have a chance to, to explore that? And it's dealt with in a manner, she says, that's fairly elegant and isn't incredibly detailed. And if you're facing death, and survive death, you want to experience everything life half has to offer. And so why not explore that? Because otherwise, you know, it's not really human to not explore that. So 
Yeah. You know, James, one of the things I've always really admired about you as a reporter and, and as a writer about television is you're just like, you're very good at like imagining forward what something w- will look like, what something will feel like when it finally makes it to air. I was just so fascinated to realize you were having this great conversation with Gwendolyn Christie about this episode that you had not seen. And it still feels as if your interview just really, um, after you published it last night, it was kind of exactly what I needed at that moment. It's a great, you know, conversation conversation between the two of you about that i i don't have that imagination that's why i'm a tv critic I, I have to see it to know what i'm going to think about it sometimes but especially you know in that moment you you kind of had already connected you know the aria and gendry thing which i think, I think a lot of people are kind of making that connection now and you know I, listen, when it comes to television, the most underrated reason for two people to hook up is like they're both super attractive and like crazy things are happening all around them. So I do get that. I think maybe one issue with all of this is that Jamie in general on the show, I find he's had a bit of a zigzag character arc pretty much since season four. Um, you know, I think Nikolai Kosterwalda is, is a really, really great performer in the part. Um, and I I think that he's brought a lot of humanity, especially to these last few seasons. But, you know, the decisions he makes seem very... seem to come from very distinctive places and there was the whole season about going to Doran and suddenly caring about his kids and that kind of fell by the wayside. There was the moment when he told Cersei it's us against the world then suddenly he's up in Winterfell and so I think that this happening in the same episode that featured another you know second half of Game of Thrones uh, trademark Jamie Lannister split decision him suddenly deciding to go back to King's Landing I didn't really buy that. It feels more like something that's been destined than something that's really been felt and so in general I think maybe a lot of that is kind of wrapped up in that this general feeling that you know so much the episode was building to that for him and it did you know it did kind of leave Brienne in a a weirder position where all of a sudden their dynamic throughout the show, I guess if I had to compare it to anything, it would be maybe like Peggy and Don on Mad Men. And I'm not sure who's who, but just this sense of like, here are two people who are really like, you know, friendly and there's something more there, but that something more is all kind of wrapped up in mentorship and in sort of like revealing aspects of themselves that other people don't see. So making it romantic and making it romantic in the way that they did, it didn't all work for me. But I guess that's another thing where, you know, I I think that, in an episode that's jam-packed with stuff. I feel, I feel like we haven't even gotten to like half of it yet. I, I think that's probably the one that a lot of people had the most sort of thoughts about and that affected the most people in terms of just, you know, maybe not fully believing the show's depiction of how those two uh, got together. That Jamie would leave for his sister does seem character consistent. I mean, both the fact that he's got this intense relationship with his uh, twin and this this romantic obsession uh and also it's it's family isn't it and and the lannisters you know are are very much you know they had that drilled into them by by tywin that's you know even if they hate tywin you know they they have that drilled into them and i think you see that with Tyrion later too you know you're walking up to try and prevent a you know, tens of thousands from dying, but also in, in some ways to, you know, I'm sure that there's a fraction of him that's trying to save his sister's life as well. Um, so, in, so in some ways you see that with both the Lannister men, um, you know, you're put, putting their lives on the line to, to try to try and say, save Cersei. So it, it doesn't surprise me that he would, 
it's like one of those decisions where as a viewer, you, you watch what Cersei does and you're like, why would he leave her for her? But if you're in that toxic romantic relationship and you've done all these other horrible things for this person, it's, it's like, I get it. What bothered me more was his, his was the part where he talked about uh, River Run because I was never clear in those scenes at River Run when he was trying to take the castle and he threatened Ed, Ed Martelli with um, you know you know you know killing his 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 newborn baby boy whether he was serious or not and I, and it's like you believed him in the scene but you wonder would he really have gone through with it and here he says oh he would have killed every man woman and child in that castle. And there's a part of me that wants to hope that maybe Jamie's just saying that to, to, you know, to, to, to sort of make Bran not love him. Um, sort of like Tyrion when he was trying to get, uh, Shay to, to leave King's landing and, and he was being all harsh with her to try and get her to go that maybe he was being that harsh with Brienne to try and, you know, make her think that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not worth this. But a part of me thinks that, yeah, maybe he's just being completely honest and that he just thinks, you know, there's this moment too where, where she says, you know, you're a good person. And he kind of does this little nod thing that I just loved. It's kind of like nod. It's like, okay, this is what this person thinks. And I'm going to have to explain to her what I am. And it's just, it's just so tragic. And, I don't know if the resistance that you're feeling, the resistance that some people are feeling is, is, is entirely earned or if part of it is just, you know, none of us want this to be true of these characters that, that we really like and, 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 and that, that we've followed because we want to think that Jamie Lannister has had this major, major turn. And he's one of my favorite characters in the show. And there's something really sad about this idea that, you know, wait a minute. Can can people not be redeemed? Can can you know, you know? Can they not change? And uh, yeah, so I I I I, I thought it was a really sad moment. And it, was, it was certainly a really sad moment for Brienne. Well, my resistance is because I just think it's a dumb turn for the characters. Um, I don't really think that. I'm that invested in the idea of Jamie's redeemability. You know, as someone who's read the books, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that the showrunners have taken the character in some different directions that on some level I just think are a lot less interesting. I guess that's the kind of comic book guy sensibility in me. Um, and, you know, who's to say they haven't ultimately followed the grander scheme of George R. R. Martin, though whatever happens to book Jamie next somehow involves Lady Stoneheart, um, which obviously didn't happen in the show. I just think that Jamie he's just such a zigzag character now and again I, I get what you're saying about like this is who he's always been and I just think that on some level you know he is a victim of the fact that in the final phase of the show people can say I'm in King's Landing and I'm going to Winterfell two weeks later I'm in Winterfell now I'm going back to King's Landing one week later back to King's Landing you know it, it feels so whiplashy and I think that all of this happening in a episode that kind of tries to put this really nice bow on a relationship that I think is really complicated. Um, that's the issues that I have. Um, you know, mm. I, I, I think I, I think a lot of characters on this show are not redeemable. And one thing I find really interesting about this episode in general and the reaction to it that I'm kind of gathering people are having is that 
we're kind of getting down to the point where some people who have been very aspirational over the run of the show and who even by virtue of the show's popularity have become like incredibly popular symbols uh, of these larger and interesting ideas. Um, some of them are going to do things that are terrible. And really, I think a lot of this episode, we're talking so much about, um, you know, these characters who have less to do with ultimately who will sit on the Iron Throne. You know, this is an episode that leaves off with the feeling that Queen Daenerys Targaryen someone who I know for a lot of people has symbolized all of these, you know, larger things about the world around us and certainly the world of Westeros. Um, you know, today, like, the Mad Queen is trending, and that's pretty, um, you know, and th- that's pretty interesting. I-, I think it's exciting to the extent that um, I-, I do sort of think that nobody on this show should be entirely heroic. Um, but I-, I also think it's a lot to, like, take in when it's kind of like, okay, like, we're past the point of everyone fighting the great evil. Now... Um, you know, who is going to ultimately be in charge of, of this country? And do they really have the best interests at heart? Um, you know, just to kind of skip ahead from the kind of celebration of the battle that was just won to the war they still have to win. Uh, this was a really interesting planning session where just a lot of the um, chasms between the characters became clear. Uh, you know, Sansa, as usual, is very focused on like resource depletion and is saying that, you know, our men in the North... Are are exhausted and correctly she, so in my mind yeah yeah well and 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 again she's talking about the battle they just fought the north has been conquered and unconquered and you know just devastated pretty much non-stop ever since the the well really since rob stark marched south but especially since the boltons marched north um and she kind of believes with some legitimacy like our men need a break like you know we, we can't win every battle and then have to go off and fight the next hugest battle in, in the history of our country um and that's just such Fisher between her and Daenerys and you know Danny really now is kind of like hey okay like <laughs> I, I I took this pretty major left turn to come up here I've lost a huge amount of my forces I'm, I'm glad that any of the unsullied are left at this point I'm not sure we saw any uh, Dothraki soldiers anymore um, so she has to march south I just thought that was um, you know it's just so compelling because We've talked about this, James. I've been such a Sansa um, supporter this whole season. In this moment, I was kind of like, I see where she's coming from, but if the soldiers leave, are they going to come back? Like, you know, if if you Hmm. break up an army right when you're about to set off on, like, the most impossible thing in this in the seven kingdoms conquering king's landing will they come back after that so i i I really in terms of struggling with who am i supporting here i just thought that scene had such a compelling way of again reframing all my expectations um how did you feel about what what, again maybe this week this will be the final sort of game board uh, uh game of risk moment for everybody in westeros and really you know different compelling reasons for everything that they want to have happen. Yeah, I was on board with what Sansa was saying in, in that scene, and I thought John pretty much decided he was going to th- basically throw his girlfriend a win by by backing her, and that bothered me because it was like, well, it's one of those decisions that's probably going to cost lives, right? If you march troops in, in, into battle uh, and they're not ready yet, but to me, that scene also is really hinging on what we saw right before that. And that was a scene with John Danny, which I thought was just an absolutely terrific scene. And we're going to get into that. We have to take a quick uh, sponsor read here. 
Um, speaking of twists and turns, uh, with unexpected twists and turns around every corner, the all-new Toyota RAV4 Limited delivers advanced tech, refined style, available tor- dynamic torque vectoring, all-wheel drive, and multi-terrain select. So it's prepared for pretty much every everything and anything in its path. Visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details. Okay, yeah, so that John and Danny scene, you know, she basically begs him to not tell uh, uh, his, his family that the only way this is going to work is if he keeps, uh, his, his parentage a secret. And, and I think, I think, you know, she's probably right. I mean, because once that gets out, it's, it's such a nuclear secret and he's like going, Oh, we, we can all, you know, coexist and it'll be fine. And it's just like, John, you know, you know, no. And she's like, yeah, it can, we can coexist. And I just told you how, you know, I think she's absolutely right. And the level of desperation and vulnerability that we're seeing in here, I think is something new. You know, you're just in general, I, I want to say, you know, and I've been an advocate for different actors, you know, should have received Emmys in previous season. I think I've been saying Lena Headey has deserved one since season one. Um, I've never seen Amelia Clark give such a broad range of Danny emotions than in this episode. And I just think she's really effective at showing how this, the house getting stressed this character is in her dealings with John and her reactions to others. And, you know, and eventually at the end, which we'll get to, I mean, to me, she's having to play, uh, so many different colors of this character under so much pressure and that I, I, I don't know. I, I, I thought she was absolutely terrific. I, I've, I've never seen her better than, than in this episode. Yeah, this was, this was definitely her best material in, uh, in a really long time on the show. Um, and I, I feel like it's great because sometimes with Amelia Clark, I just feel like she's had a rough time as far as being cast in major franchise movies that no one winds up liking, whether it's the Terminator or, or, or the Star Wars. And just like in this episode in general... There was just this fascinating quality to her. You know, so often when she's kind of playing Daenerys, um, you know, in public, when she's kind of playing to her, the people that she is ruling, there's this great sort of floating Targaryen aspect to her, as if she is flying on a dragon, even when there's no dragons around. And in this episode, there was that mixed with everything you're kind of talking about, this sort of feeling of trying to juggle all these things, sincerely being in love with someone, sincerely knowing in a way that he clearly does not that this secret will destroy them and I mean you know maybe that's harsh words maybe there's people out there who think like you know there is some way they could rule together and there is some way that you know they they could be the sort of dream ideal of a Westerosi dynasty there's even like there's some there in the sort of George R. R. Martin histories there are these kind of examples of kings and queens who rule together generally in peace I just think that um, you know that scene to me James, it really called all the way back to season one to Cersei and Ned Stark having this conversation about like what is the Game of Thrones all about? And mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that in a strange way, it just feels like John has not learned the most important lesson you can learn from Ned Stark, um, which is doing the honorable thing. Uh, sometimes that gets you killed or that gets a lot of people killed. And, you know, it was just really interesting to me that in that scene, you know, John is in a very sincere way, like a dunce cap for nobility. He is absolutely someone who will try to do the right thing. He feels like he has to tell certainly his family the truth about himself. And on some level, 
I think he thinks, tell anybody, it's fine. Like, we're in love, it'll be okay. And Danny doesn't feel that way. And, you know, some aspects of this I found a little troubling. I sort of thought that, you know... In the scene, she seems to be saying that John is more popular in Westeros than she is. And I think there's there's different ways you can kind of frame that. I, I kind of suspect that the second she flies anywhere with her dragon, people are going to be pretty in awe of her. Um, but I just thought that was a really fascinating dynamic between them. All the more so because then John just turned around and told his family. And in that scene, I was just really kind of like, John, I don't think you have to tell them. Like, like honestly, John you're not that close with Sansa. <laughs> like, I just don't think that, like, I don't think it's information that she has to know, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a mistake. Uh, it is a mistake <laughs> at this juncture, especially since Danny hasn't even gotten the Iron Throne yet. It's one thing to do it after she, you know, you know she's been crowned and, and, you know, if she presumably wins and then go, hey, by the way, because it's really tough to sort of change things once they're already kind of set but to tell them when everything's still in motion and everything's chaotic and yet i i get it from a character perspective again because you know john has been uh allergic to dishonesty he's 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 truth intolerant you know the the man just can't help himself and when it comes to this he's basically being asked to live a lie he's basically asked to you know, hang out with his family and pretend like he's somebody completely different. And that just kills him. And he can't seem to hold that back. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I get it for, from a character perspective. Um, and it's also what makes him, him such a great character because this is like his, uh, you know, Kit Harrington called this episode Shakespearean. And, I, and I think that's right. And in, 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 in Shakespeare's tragedies, you know, the, you know, characters have, have like a fatal flaw. Right. And in this case, what makes John so interesting is his tragic flaw is an, is a positive quality. Honesty is a positive quality. You know, that's supposed to be something that's good. But in, in this case, we have uh, this lead character whose, whose tragic flaw is this great noble quality. And, but he's in this world that is so, uh, you know, you know, selfish and and opportunistic and and you know, often downright evil. That that it becomes this liability, and I, th- I think I think that's why, um, you know, we get very into the granular while watching these episodes, and I do think a lot of these things are going to look better on in. In retrospect, when you sort of step back and it's like first episode, John finds out. Second episode, Danny finds out. Now, uh, you know, fourth episode, he's faced with this choice uh, of of telling his family or not. And I just think that uh, as a dramatic structure for for laying this out and giving the characters really good challenges that play to their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, this is some there's some smart storytelling going on here. Yeah, I'm going to pull a little bit into my high school English here, and I apologize to like uh, all of my teachers for maybe bungling this comparison, but as much as I loved Kit Harington's um, comparison of uh, his tragic flaw to Shakespearean tragedy, I also thought that it had a little bit of that plus some Greek tragedy, because I think in Greek tragedy, the general feeling is like this total inevitability, this feeling that the characters are actually not so much in control of their fate— 
because of, in, in, in Greek tragedy, the gods. In this case, as much as I think what John is doing is very motivated by his own feelings, you know, there's a fascinating aspect of this season bringing forward the fact that the two most important people on the show were dead years before the show started uh, John's parents um, you know a a Targaryen and a Stark fell in love and now years and years later as a result of their love you have this guy who if he just stayed quiet, I'm not sure that you know everything would have gone smoothly, um, but certainly it would have gone more smoothly than it seems destined to go now that the secret is out. And I just think that that is a really... Um, sorrowful path, really. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I have no sense of where the show is going from here. I do think John has kind of doomed himself, or at least probably doomed any chance he had at, like, ruling happily as Warden of the North, kind of, you know, at the small chair next to the Iron Throne. Um, I will say, James, one thing that kind of confused me a little bit, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. It felt to me like we left a lot of dramatic money on the table not seeing John tell his sister this information all the more so because um unless i'm missing something that's the last scene we'll ever see them all together in uh we, we then see Arya leaves to go south with the hound kind of leaves out the back door which you know i, I think that's maybe in keeping with her character but I, I, that was that, that was the last of the starks as the title of uh this episode kind of nudged towards and i I guess I wanted to see the reaction to that. That that felt a little network TV to me in, in this sort of old-fashioned practice way. Um, do, do, do you think, was there a purpose to not seeing that moment between the characters? Actually, if we're talking about scenes that we would like to see, more than the Starks finding out, I would have liked to have seen a scene with Masande and Cersei because she's captured by Cersei. There are these two really powerful female characters uh, that have been in the show for such a long time. They have such enormous differences in terms of their thoughts and their history and their feelings. And I think if they had had that scene, it actually would have made what happened next with Masande even more powerful. And you know, so, so that that's like a character pairing opportunity that I think would have been really cool. Anyway, I have no doubt that this was debated to some extent behind the scenes, uh, they always struggle with this exact same thing. They always struggle with, should we show in the show something that the viewers already know? And if you've already shown John finding out and then you show Danny finding out, do you also devote an entire scene to showing uh, Sansa and Arya finding out. And yes, I, you do. <laughs> I, and, and, and I think the, the thought was, is that's too repetitive to, to keep, you know, showing people finding out. But I completely agree with you because in the moment when they cut away, I was like, Oh, because I, I mean, of course I, I, I wanted to see, see that too. Yeah. So I think that's one of those ones where they're trying to be, um, you know, very, very strategic and disciplined in terms of the storytelling, but, and they're trying to balance, you know, showing you things that are new versus, versus avoiding the, these kind of recappy scenes. And, uh, and as a result that got cut off and I, and I, I do think fans would have, would have, um, would have really liked to have seen that, you know, myself included. The the the, the one thing I, I actually didn't uh, care for in the episode was uh, the Braun scene. And I didn't like Braun holding a crossbow on Tyrion and 
Jamie. I just, it's that to me felt, felt out of character for him. It's like, I, you know, I know he's a cutthroat. I know he was tasked. I don't see him walking into Winterfell with a crossbow and, and, and threatening to murder them like right in the middle of the great hall where presumably there are other people, plenty of other people around that could see this. It just, it, it wasn't really clear whether he was joking or not. And I just felt like if the guy just walked up with the crossbow, put the crossbow down and said, Hey, you know, you know, you know, this is what, uh, uh, Cersei offered, you know, obviously I don't want to do that. You know, let's make a deal. I think that would have just gone over a lot better. It, it just felt like this very tense standoff that felt weird for those characters to be doing that considering everything we've seen between them in the past. Yeah, I think that was also the scene where Jamie and Tyrion made the joke about climbing mountains. So in in general, I think a lot of problems to be had with that scene. Though, again, I guess I do like this idea of Bronn sort of picking up from other quote-unquote small folk characters over the course of the show, just kind of like the, the, the Z plot of Game of Thrones in hindsight will be his steady ascent to being in charge of Highgarden, I guess. That, that, the, the other issue with that scene, James, was it did kind of get to that like Star Trek 2009 thing where like, you know, in that movie, like just everyone becomes captain, and in this show, episode it was like, everyone gets a grand house, like, you know, you're gonna be in charge of this, you're gonna be in charge of that. Like, you do kind of have a little bit of the Westeros logic kicks in where you're kind of like would that happen and you know will Tyrion actually hold to that so I I hear having some complaints about that Um, James that was kind of the beginning of a phase of this very long episode of sort of longtime pals or at least uh, you know close allies starting to say goodbye to each other Um, we had uh, John saying goodbye to all his pals from up north Uh, Tormund Giants Bane is heading back uh, up to where the free folk used to be from. Not sure I think that's the best idea, but uh, you know, I, I thought that was a nice farewell between them. Gilly and Sam are going to have another kid. They're, they're already getting started on cranking out a whole lot of little uh, Gillies and Sams. Um, and Ghost, of course, is going to be going northwards. Uh, and, you know, again, Hound and Arya, Sansa and Tyrion. Um, this was sort of, I guess, to your point earlier, James, this was the end of the version of this episode from season five or season six where we were watching two episodes instead of one. Uh, what were the big goodbyes? Uh, what was the stuff that really worked for you? Um, were there kind of surprises for you here in this moment? People you weren't expecting to say farewell at this point. I mean, I I, I didn't know exactly about that scene. So uh, so to me, there, there was a lot in this episode that, that was a bit surprising. And, um, and uh, you know, I did think John saying goodbye to Sam was particularly... Uh, heartfelt um, as they have sort of become best friends and uh, and the ghost thing ghost just kind of looked at John like hey you've been ignoring me for last three seasons so I so whatever <laughs> go go ahead and put me up for adoption I I, I don't even care anymore <laughs> you know poor ghost um, but uh, I did see someone on, on Twitter do a poster for the spinoff show he wants to see as a, as a poster of Tormund and Ghost, you know, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which, which is just big going on like North of the Wall adventures, uh, which sounds, which, which sounds pretty great. But, uh, you know, we, we should go ahead and advance to the next stage of the action, uh, because, oh man, oh man, so much goes down. Um, I really like the shot of, 
uh, Daenerys, she's, she, you know, she's on Drogon. She's just kind of cruising along. We just kind of cut in to her flying. And so we think that this is going to be some sort of establishing shot that she's establishing, you know, where she is and the fleets down below. And we feel like this is going to lead into some conversation maybe. And, you know, a little bit of table setting in terms of strategy. And instead, all of a sudden, Rhaegal is just like pierced and goes down and it's sort of like uh, uh, Danny's reaction mirrors our own. It's like, she doesn't even realize I, I can't believe that, that, that this is happening uh, and happening so quickly and, and everything's going to hell. Yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned just the feeling of the establishing shot getting disrupted. And this is Game of Thrones for me, I guess, is really the moments that you think are going to be the most romantic and high fantasy. We're romantic in the sense of just the beautiful painting of the dragon rider and the other dragon behind her. Those are the moments when they are really most in danger. Um, I got to say, you know, Euron is such a crazy character to throw into the end of this show. He really is just like the grenade they are throwing in that just keeps on exploding when you least expect it. But the whole time during this scene and just the glee on his face, I kept thinking about that great interview that you did with the actor and him just saying like, yo, I have a lot of cool shit that I do this season. I was like, yeah, you really do, man. Like you, you are the guy who is like writing this incredible dragon killer. The, the mechanics of the machine I found a little confusing because it sort of looked as if they have now created um, these crossbow missiles that are so powerful that like four of them can take down a ship, which is pretty crazy. Like I, we sort of saw that happen as Tyrion was uh, jumping off the one of the ships that got taken down. Um, you know, I, I I always love kind of talking strategy with people, and I, I get the sense that like there's a feeling that was there a way to avoid this, and you know, it, how does a fleet kind of hide behind Dragonstone? But I just really thought this was a scene that you know right down to the moment in hindsight when you knew everything was going to go south when Missandei and Grey Worm were holding hands just what a complete dive bomb turn of your emotional state yeah. uh, how did you feel I mean J James was this for you does this complete the transformation of Euron into just one of the most like whatever else you think about what he's doing on the show it's delightful to see him now whenever he does appear <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I, th I thought they really did a good job of introducing a, a late stage disruptive character who is gleeful and disruptive in terms of the role that he plays on the show. And in my um, uh, you know interview with him that, that went up a, a few weeks ago, he was he was all saying something like, oh, my agent sent me. Um, uh, I, I forgot if I ever told this in the podcast before, but he's he's like my you know my agent sent me this, this sports book thing that said I was going to be that Euron was going to be the first to die. And he goes, well, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of fucking money <laughs> you know, because because I am I, I'm sticking around and I'm doing a lot of cool stuff. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I think it's a cool character. Um, I need to rewatch the scene because I was a bit fuzzy on like where everybody was uh, when that yeah, yeah. when that happened because it's like if Ra if he was close enough to take off Rhaegal and Rhaegal was right next to Drogon but then it seems like she goes closer and closer and he's waiting for her to get in his sights to fire but wouldn't she already be in range if if he took out the first dragon I I, I need to go back and and 
and and and, yeah. and, re- and rewatch that. But you know, I do like the intensity of the moment of her you know, wanting to dive and you know burn the whole fleet, and then realizing that she that that would be a suicidal move after seeing all those scorpions pointed at her, and she has to take off, and she has to to uh, leave her fleet basically unprotected um, and uh, and the agony and that she shows in that moment that uh, was pretty intense. Yeah, this was definitely an episode full of, well, two moments specifically when there were a lot of arrows pointed at someone and I was confused about why they weren't just firing at them. See also Tyrion later in the episode. Um, but uh, I will say, James, I feel like I, I'd, I'd probably come off as someone who's very, like, furrowed brow. Like, well, like, the battles are fine, but what I'm really excited about is the human emotions. I did feel a little bit of a... Um, perhaps a cheeky callback in this battle scene where like right when stuff is getting super crazy and there's that one shot uh, full credit to David Nutter and everyone for this moment where you're just kind of following Tyrion all around this ship that is about to fall into the water and just everywhere these like giant crossbow bolts are flying Um, he lands in the water and right when you're thinking like oh boy oh boy it's a full on sea battle he gets hit in the head which has to be some kind of a callback to the very first big battle on the show that kind of famously they kind of worked around it by knocking Tyrion out I I just thought that was a little you know that was a funny way um to maybe uh you know not necessarily do a full battle sequence but certainly give us the full brunt of what happened in that moment um you know you sort of see everybody get swept up onto the beach Grey Worm realizes that uh, Missande who he'd sort of told to get onto a a kind of skiff a little like dinghy she did disappeared um you know again i'm here for anybody who has some general questions about this you were mentioning being confused about where everybody was not totally clear to me how the one fleet kind of targetedly picks up this one little boat and finds you know a person that happens to be danny's right hand person on there um but you know that can i think brought forward the ultimate drama of this episode masande being captured being chained again um and cersei and danny kind of staring at at each other and her kind of you know masande in that moment uh, unfortunately not having much to do but kind of symbolizing what these two characters uh, are about to do to each other really yeah i was actually on set for the moment on the boat when the last happy moment between gray worm and masande when they're holding hands and then all hell breaks loose and and he tells her to get to the skiff and you just you know a little bit of of background about you know how much detail goes into one of these things um you know they did it a few different ways and um the actor who plays gray worm um uh, Jacob Anderson was was saying to uh, uh, Natalie Emanuel, he was saying, you know, you know, get to the skiff. And he was saying it urgently, but not particularly angrily. And um, one of the showrunners, David Benioff, went, went to him and was like, no, you, you know, you need to be more more angry and, and like at a now at at the end of it. And 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 Jacob was initially a little hesitant because he's like, yeah, but, you know, I I love her so much. You know, I wouldn't want to speak so harshly. Uh, you know, you know, to her, um, because you know that that's just not how Grey Worm, you know, ever speaks to Masande, and and Benioff had, had had this great point. He, he was like, you know, it's 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 like if you have a if you see a loved one start to walk into traffic, 
you know, they're, they're, it's that anger that comes from, you know, you know, concern that if you don't move right now, you're going to die. And so he's like, okay, you know, now I got it. And so he, and he goes, you know, you want to show her this part of you that, that, that she's never actually seen. And so he, and they redid it and did that just kind of furious and like, now move. And it just goes to show, you know, a little background about how like literally every line, a line that you probably didn't even think about, or, you know, gets kind of worked over and sweated over to try and get just right. Um, on the set, but then, yeah, as you say, um, uh, Masanda gets kidnapped. Uh, Tyrion and Varys uh, urge uh, Danny to, you know, be restrained. Don't go in there with dragons blazing. Cersei surrounding herself with, with, uh, with uh, human shields uh, to, to 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 play off Danny's, um, yeah, uh, you know, um, you know lack of willingness to, to, to kill civilians. And you, and you get this nice conversation with Tyrion and Varys setting that up where it's clear Varys is going to do something. I mean, right. I mean, it's, it sounds like Varys has like, like some real objections to Danny's reign at this point. And Tyrion saying, please don't, it's not clear. I mean, what do you think he's going to do? Because I, 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 I actually don't know. So I mean, I, what do you yeah, think? I, I was fascinated by this scene in general. You know, it's interesting to think of the spider has spent the whole run of the show and indeed the entirety of Danny's life kind of planning for her to be on the throne. I'm kind of forgetting now which part of this comes from the books and what has kind of come from him being on the show. But there has always been this sense that the spider who, when you met him, was such a like looming and shadowy figure. And, you know, is he just kind of in it for himself? He really does view himself as someone who is quite heroically in his own opinion focused on the realm and what is good for everyone and like Danny to a certain extent is someone that he is just sort of believed in so much as someone who could ultimately be a good ruler certainly better than the six or seven other rulers that he's had you know it's a big shift for him to suddenly be like, never mind like maybe John is better um, but I, I did find their back and who do you forth. think is better what's that who do you think is better I mean if you, if you could put John or Danny on the Iron Throne who would you put well, here's the thing, people. Maybe the ultimate lesson of Game of Thrones is that monarchy is bad and there should be a democracy. That's what I'm kind of secretly <laughs> hoping for the series finale to, to come about. Like, Varys is like, why don't we elect someone instead? Because that's what we should really be focused on here. But I don't know. You know, I, I'm really excited by this sort of feeling that Daenerys, um, who has won so many battles and who views herself as a... Um, truly transformative figure as someone who is going to sort of end the rule of tyranny in a place that has been just beset by it. Um, she wants to rule differently. She's now getting to a point where like, okay, you know, you don't want to do the blockade, which is the sort of slow, gradual way to wear someone down. You want to go in there and like win. And, you know, is that going to be the thing that, like, by doing that, by killing all these people, they're going to be afraid of you forever? And does that then mean you're a bad ruler? Um, you know, I don't really know about that. As far as who's left on the show, I think Sansa should be in charge of everything um, because I do think that, like, she's the one who's most focused on the, the, the jumbling together of what is best for the realm and what is best for the political realities that we are facing and how do we kind of, like, bridge that gap between the two. Um, but, you know, I don't think Sansa wants to sit on the Iron Throne. Like, I, I think at this point she's kind of like, the North has to do the North at this point. Like, I, I'd be intrigued to know how it goes from here. I don't think her telling Tyrion the truth about Jon 
was a power play as much as it was just sort of her honestly feeling like having a Targaryen uh, rule would not be for the best. But I don't know. You know, these are all bigger questions. Well, what do you kind of think, James? Is there one person you'd say should be on the throne at this point? I mean, between John and Danny, because I, I, I do think Sansa would indeed be great. I also feel like that Sansa doesn't seem like that's something that she would want. Yeah. Um, between John and Danny, it's interesting because it's, it's like I want to say John in a lot of ways because he's such a more likable character. And I think that, you know, if you ask me, you know, who's a better person, I, I, I think Jon Snow is a better person. But mm-hmm. his judgment in this episode, yeah. uh, in terms of telling his family, was so, you know, uh, you know tactically dumb. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, he already got himself assassinated once you know, when, when, he, when he was trying to lead a group of people. I'm not sure he's as good of a leader as as, uh, as Tyrion and Varys think, think he is. I, I, yeah. I'm not sure whether ultimately he would be better than her on the Iron Throne. I think there's an argument to be made that if you're running a the Seven Kingdoms, that from what we've seen on the show, a certain degree of, of deviousness and ruthlessness is required and yeah. that she has that and he doesn't. So yeah. I, I actually don't agree with, and I'm, and I'm just sort of coming to this as I'm saying that because I haven't, yeah. re- I really haven't, I, I threw that out at you, but was it, and then realized, Oh shit, I'm gonna have to answer that too. Um, so, so you're saying, so you're saying yeah. like, but, but, but James, so, so to clarify, just between the two of them, you're saying if you had to choose just between right the now, two of them, yeah. I actually still think, uh, Danny from what we've seen so far would, would make a better ruler. Yeah. I, you know, the, the more you talk about that, if it's down to the two of them and, and to be honest, I, I, I don't think it is. I, I think the show by very, virtue of um, building those two up so much in this episode. I have to suspect something else is happening. Um, I guess on some level, I, I view John as a, like, he, he's a military man. Like, he is someone who, like, in the thick of an incredibly difficult series of battles and in, in a war that for him has been very, like, multifaceted. Like, he's made the right difficult decisions I- I- in the moment. Um, you know, do I think he's like a long-term planner? Like, I, I, I sort of don't. I guess with Danny, right. boy, it is funny. We're, we're talking about this and clearly hadn't prepared for this. With Danny, you do have the counterexample of, you know, how did she do before when she was in charge of a vast amount of country? And the answer there, maybe not like super positive. I mean, she kind of ruled because she had the most power of anyone. And in that sense, you kind of have a benevolent despot. And I do think that she, she certainly, I mean, she is a benevolent person. Like she's, but she is someone who having been through so many awful things in her life, having experienced slavery in a lot of ways, you know, she is someone who views herself, at least in her mind, as someone who is going to be better for the vast majority of, uh, of people. Um, and so in that sense, you're right that, like, even if in this battle, if she winds up killing a lot of people in King's Landing, does that mean she's forever seared by that? If anything, does it mean that she feels like the need to do more penance? I, I don't know. I, I guess, I mean, again, 
I'm not sure either of them is like a perfect lord for the Seven Kingdoms. And again, if we've learned one thing over the course of the show, it's that maybe nobody is. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, like nobody in recent history who's sat on the yeah. Iron Throne. The, the best you can hope for, I guess, is Robert Baratheon, who just is a total drunk who leaves it to his small council to slowly go totally <laughs> broke. I would say about her tenure in Marine, it seems like all the trouble she was having was the fact that she was insisting on not having slavery when slavery was key to that economy. And so it's hard to say how much her steward, her leadership in, in Marine would, is a reflection of her quality as a leader. But she was trying to force a sort of sea change in a culture that didn't want to change. Uh, slavery is illegal in Westeros. So, I mean, I could imagine a reign of Danny not having the same problems that she had when she was across the Narrow Sea. Yeah. And then again, maybe she just doesn't like Westeros that much. Cause I'll be honest, like compared to where she came from, Westeros kind of sucks sometimes. Like <laughs> I, it's funny what she was saying in this episode about how people in Westeros haven't worshiped her to the same extent. Again, like I, 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 I go back and forth on whether that's true. I do kind of think there is a true awe around her as you know, everything that she's done in the past and as someone who rides a freaking dragon everywhere. Um, but you know, there are those moments where you're kind of like, yeah, like you came from a place that in general, there was better weather over there um so it's interesting to think about her now kind of being in this place of she has finally come home she is at the door of king's landing and yet she's never been further from everything that she sort of has known as a home in the broader scheme of things i do kind of wonder if if you asked daenerys targaryen at this point where is home for her it's a place she's never been to um and also it's places that she will never return to so uh, james let's get into brass tacks here right Uh, the ending scene we are in the hyper-accelerated version of this show where it's possible for someone to go to uh, Winterfell and Dragonstone and King's Landing, even without the aid of a dragon, although it helps if you're Danny and you do have one dragon left to take you places. Big showdown here. I mentioned earlier, some of the physics here confuse me. I'm not sure why the archers didn't just fire at Tyrion and at the people that Cersei really, really doesn't like. Um, But I do kind of think that uh, as a preview for what I assume will be the scale of the production next week, this kind of moment at the walls of King's Landing, um, I think I kind of felt the city as a palpable physical thing more than maybe at any other time, at least when we've been kind of in this corner of the show's version of King's Landing. Um, and of course, this was the emotional moment when uh, Missande, who's been in the show for such a long time, unfortunately, this was not the moment when Cersei decided to become a nicer person. Um, thoughts about this moment and what it kind of feeds into for next week's episode? Well, first of all, I thought director David Nutter just filmed it amazingly uh i just the 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 grand scope of that massive wall with the scorpions on top and danny's like scarily small little force i think the reason they weren't shot by arrows is i'm assuming they were just out of arrows range and that's why they were so far back and then once Tyrion walked forward he was within arrow shot and cersei decided once again Again, I think it's I think it's the, the 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 family thing. I think she decided, no, I'm not going to kill, you know, my brother as much as I hate him in in this moment. Yeah, it reminded me. It, I kept thinking of that standoff at the end of the other last um, uh, fa- fantasy that that we saw, uh, the last Jedi. You know, you're 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 right there at the end. Um, 
the framing of it was a little bit similar, but instead of having that sort of CGI haze, it felt like, oh, this is really there. This is really happening. And yeah, and so I just thought it was wonderfully tense. And you know something is going to happen. You know something bad is probably going to happen. And you don't know how it's going to go. And I just, so I just, I thought it was just shot wonderfully well. It reminded me also a bit of the Battle of Bastards with um, uh, watching John's reactions to what Ramsey was doing on the other side of the field uh, with Rickon. And instead you're watching uh, uh, Danny's reactions to what's happening on, on, on the other side of, of the field as you're watching her, te- her getting tense and scared and worried and thinking Tyrion's about to get killed. And ultimately we know Cersei's not surrendering. We know that right? we know that she would rather die than, than give herself over to Daenerys. Uh, it's just not happening. Tyrion feels like he has to try. He has to try. He he has to like give an attempt to save these lives. And Danny feels like, well, you know, maybe the people of Westeros will give me some points, (laughs) you know, on my balance sheet. If I at least make an effort to resolve this peacefully, uh, you know, before I start killing everybody. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderfully tense scene. And, um, and you know Natalie Emanuel does does so much kind of silent acting. She's she she's clearly terrified. This is exactly where she doesn't want to be. She's given a chance to say one last word, and the word she chooses is very telling. It's it's not saying it to Cersei. It's it's basically I feel like a message to Danny. You know, it's 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 like it's very much like you know burn them all. You know, let's uh you know you know go get them. And it's a very defiant last stand uh, for for this terrific character. Um, I was re- recently rewatching uh, season three when she was first introduced, and just from, from you know from the moment you know that character was introduced as uh, as as a translator in in servitude, very quickly. Uh, Quickly and sharply, you know, reinterpreting, um, you know, you know, all of her her master's vulgarities and insults, you know, and spinning them uh, out out for Danny. You know, she's been such a great character, and uh, so it's 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 definitely a tragic end, but it's also a grand operatic ending um, in terms of the character, and also seems to. F- fuel a very specific purpose. It's not just like, oh, this, that's another person that died, you know, in front of the, the, the zombie attack. And I think that's one reason why I wasn't like most people there that are saying, well, how come more important characters weren't killed by the army of the dead? It's like, well, you know, how satisfying is that really when you, you have a character killed by, by zombies? I think this is much more dramatically interesting. And it's also very, you know, forward motion in, in terms of the storyline. I mean, this clearly had this incredible reaction to Danny. I've never seen, I know her face could do that, you know, and the, you know, the, the way she looks at the end, you know, clearly things are going to go down. Um, you know, uh, what, what did you think? 
Well, uh, just minor point of order. If you're going to do three episodes preparing for a battle with zombies, then it seems to me like at least one of those deaths should matter a little bit more than the death of characters who you kind of thought were going to die years and years ago. Anyhow, we're not talking about that episode anymore because I couldn't agree more with you, James, that this death was so much more meaningful. You had a great chat with Natalie Emanuel that everyone should read. Um, and I thought that she gave a lot of just good insight into the character. I, I was kind of sad to realize because in the interview she mentions that her and Danny haven't had that many like close proximity friendship scenes in recent years and I guess that's just sort of you know something sacrificed to the altar of general plot momentum but I really felt like what you were just saying about her final word um, you know that was the moment when like the chill kind of goes down the spine that like you know she's very aware that she is dying Um, she's certainly someone who had a really wonderful life almost within sight I mean how do you survive the army of the dead only to sort of die here in such an awful way and she's gonna she's telling her queen like you know, like, I never really liked this country to begin with. Like, and, and now now that I'm gone, you should definitely burn this place to the ground. And I, I think that's just a really fascinating note to leave off on. Again, um, you know, how that leaves Danny without anybody who was there for her when she truly needed people. As much as Tyrion is devoted to her, he met her when she was already a queen. Um, you know, this is someone who's, who's been with her for such a long time, someone who had her own journey that she was on, and now that's come to an end. Um, you know, I think if I've had an issue with this season and last season to a certain extent, James, it has been the feeling of, like, we know where they're all going with the Army of the Dead. You know, if there's no greater insight to be had on that side of things, if the Night King doesn't have a three-dimensional character we're not seeing yet, what's the fun of that? Um, you know, this episode ends and you're really kind of like, there's two queens who both in their own way are kind of simultaneously plotting to kill lots of people in King's Landing and both doing it for reasons that they think are just or that are best for them and you know who are you kind of left to root for um and and as we've discussed even the people that someone like Varys is like no like john should rule it's kind of like i don't know about that either like i you know it's you're left sort of feeling that i I see a lot of people saying that oh like well Tyrion would be a good king Tyrion's had a real rough go with his strategy lately so i i don't know i this episode is probably our longest episode ever and i think it speaks to the fact that this episode of thrones um there was just so much in it to kind of talk through and i thought that as far as setting the table um, for the final two episodes, and next week's episode, of course, is directed by Miguel Sapochnik, uh, which I assume means it's not going to be a, a bottle episode about people hanging out in a <laughs> hanging out in a single room for the whole time. Um, you know, it's just it, it's an interesting note to leave off on. Yeah, yeah, the promo for next week really shows you very little. It just shows everyone continuing to be in the standoff that we kind of left them in although except john and the other reserve forces have now arrived outside king's landing um i I talked a lot about before the season about how game of thrones built a big extension to the winterfell set uh, to make that bigger and better that wasn't the most impressive set i saw um the most impressive set i think i've ever seen is the one they built of king's landing for the next couple episodes. They built a incredibly large um, King's Landing set that is, I think it's the largest standing set. I haven't done a huge number of movie set visits, but I mean, of the ones I've been on, I've never seen a standing set this big. It was street after street after street, you know, recreating 
um, a lot of the streets that they have used in Old Town, Dubrovnik, and Croatia for King's Landing in the past. And, and so that was really weird because normally if you build, you invest in some massive street scene, what you're doing is you're building something that doesn't exist in reality. You're usually building, like I was on a set of Alita Battle Angel and, you know, they had a, they, 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 they had a set of, of, of their Iron City, you know, as a set of, um, a fantastic beast and where to find them. And they had this old town, uh, this, this, you know, 1926 New York set that they used a lot. But this is recreating something that actually exists, but they they wanted their own version of it. They wanted their own version of it where they can you know control for for, for privacy and other things. And it, it's another big playset for Miguel Sapochnik to do lots of interesting uh, filming uh, for for episode five, which um, you know Amelia Clark has teased that it's going to be even bigger than the Long Night, except during the day. So so there's that. <laughs> Finally, finally, all of our critiques have have been answered. Um, James, any more final thoughts on on this episode? Any predictions, maybe? I mean, like, given the flow of this season, I'm now kind of wondering if next week is going to be, like, the battle finale, and then we'll kind of go into a finale that I I did find myself wondering, are they going to do what I have to describe as pulling a Gotham, where the final episode will, like, leap forward in time uh, many, many years? That seems a little more on the table now than it was when the season started. Um, But again, just in general, your thoughts on this third to last episode of of Thrones, um, very, very meaty 80-plus minutes of of television, I think it's fair to say, even if I had some, some issues with it along the way. Yeah, I'm, I mean, no predictions. Oh, I w- did want to point out, um, uh, EW had a cover story a while back, uh, on, you know, teasing the Battle of Winterfell. And I, I want to point out, because I've been wanting to point it out since I wrote it, that the story opens with this uh, scene outside the castle Winterfell gates and all is quiet and there are dead heroes laying outside. And I've never said what that scene was. That scene was actually the funeral scene. That's that. So, oh, so that wow. was the scene that, uh, that I saw that, that, that lead is cryptically alluding to. And so that's what, if you read the story, a helicopter buzzes the set and everybody freaks out because they think that the helicopter pilot might have seen this massive spoiler and so what the pilot could have seen if they looked out their window or had a camera you know out, you know pointed down in that moment is they would have seen six characters laying on funeral pyres you know outside the castle which was yeah i mean that's about as big of a spoiler as you could possibly witness in a flyby moment and so that's why that had so I've never been able to really fully explain that opening because I didn't want to give away you know how how the battle ended but that's uh, that that was what that whole thing was alluding to and uh, we're not done yet with your stories from the set James because um you were around for uh, some sequences in the upcoming episodes right I'm 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 excited to get some insight in, into that uh, as as we kind of begin to yeah. come to the end of our uh, podcast yeah. time yeah I, I don't know if I was around it for anything in 5 but I was around for something in 6 and uh and yeah so there's that and what happened <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, stuff happened. <laughs> stuff happened with people doing stuff. Stuff happened. <laughs> Courage. Courage can be a powerful asset, which is why the all-new Toyota RAV4 Adventure Grade comes with standard dynamic torque vectoring all-wheel drive and multi-train select, so you have the courage and confidence to roam over almost any train. Visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details. Okay, so I, I, think we're, I think we're good here. This might be, speaking of long episodes, I think this is probably our longest podcast. 
This is our longest. It's time to wrap it up, but we could go on and on and on. There was so much to talk about, and we, we do want to hear from everybody about this episode. I feel like now that we're past the point of being united against the obvious bad guy, we're in some much less obvious territory, and I'd love to hear what everybody thinks. Tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Um, this podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Radio.com, on Spotify. Um, give us a rating and, and give us a review. I know it's kind of late days, but we do really want this podcast to be as good as possible and we do want to hear what you think um and uh be sure to tune in next week reminder to everyone that we have two more episodes of this podcast recapping all the stuff that happens with people doing stuff in the last two episodes of thrones followed by followed by as james is eye rolling and nudging me towards the camera there will be an epilogue episode of this show so three episodes total left um please do check in with us next week here on EW's Game of Thrones Weekly.